This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, John and I are excited to talk to you this week about things loosely related to, I don't know, coronary artery disease and some diabetes stuff. Uh, so, John, why don't you just take it away? What article are you going to be talking about? Yeah, we'll get right into it. I guess it's kind of like maybe metabolic syndrome, hey? We'll call it that. Uh, so today, I'm going to be talking about CT or invasive coronary angiography in stable chest pain, the discharge trial group. And this was published in New England Journal, hot off the press, April 2022. Cool. And what was the research question here? So the question was, what is the comparative effectiveness of CT angiography versus standard angiography in the management of coronary artery disease to reduce frequency of adverse events? Yes, coronary disease, very, very common in most of the patients we look after on the internal medicine ward. But um, why did this catch your attention? Well, there's a lot of reasons. So a CT scan is an accurate, non-invasive way to diagnose obstructive coronary artery disease in patients who have stable, intermediate pretest probability risk. You know, angiography is the standard of care for diagnosis, but of course it's invasive, and so there are some rare but serious side effects, um, but it allows both for diagnosis as well as revascularization, so kind of treatment as well in certain cases. You know, it's been shown, though, that some evidence uh, show that obstructive coronary artery disease is only found in 38 to 50 percent of patients who go for the procedure and so you know a big question is well do you need it or not um, there was this trial called the promise trial and it showed that an initial approach with ct scan compared with functional testing so you know stress testing was actually associated with similar cardiovascular outcomes at 25 months so now it's time to sort of do a head-to-head -head compare ct scan versus angiography Okay. And like, uh, how often have you used a CT scan to assess for somebody's coronary disease? Great question. And I will happily say I've done it zero times, but I think my practice is about to change. Yes. You and I both. Okay. What was the study design here? So this was a multi-center pragmatic randomized superiority trial comparing CT with angiography across 26 centers in Europe. Uh, the population was 30 years of age or older with stable chest pain, and, and that was defined as an intermediate pretest probability. So between 10 to 60% pretest probability for having obstructive coronary artery disease. And you know, that's based on the characteristics of the chest pain, um, whether you're male or female, and then your age group. Uh, they excluded patients who were on hemodialysis who are not in sinus rhythm, and they also excluded pregnant patients. Uh, so the procedure. So the CT scan was done in, you know, uh, half of the group, and this was in interpreted by two radiologists who were certified in cardiovascular CT. Um, if no obstructive coronary artery disease was identified on CT scan, then they were discharged back to the referring physician. If obstructive coronary artery disease was found, then they were treated as per guidelines. Um, and so patients were randomized between CT versus angiography. Uh, the outcomes that they looked at, so the primary outcome was major adverse cardiovascular events. And this was a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. Um, and events were adjudicated by members of an independent clinical events committee who were unaware of group assignments. And then there were a whole bunch of secondary outcomes, um, including some things like um, some quality of life indicators um, and an assessment of like anginal chest pain after the fact. And it was a modified intention to treat analysis. All right. This sounds pretty cool. Uh, what did the included patients look like? 
Yeah, so about 3,600 patients were enrolled, and of those, 1,800 were randomized to CT, and 1,800 were randomized to angiography. Uh, adherence to randomization was 98.6% in the CT group and 97.3% in the angiography group, and median follow-up was 3.5 years. The average age was 60, with 56% of patients being women, and about 60% with hypertension, 15% with diabetes, and 48% with dyslipidemia. All right, cool. So what one? Angiography, which I'm sure the cardiologists are hoping to hear, or CT scans, which I'm sure the radiologists are hoping to hear? Yeah, so the primary outcome, and again, this was a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke. 38 patients, or 2.1% in the CT group, compared to 52 patients, or 3% in the angiography group, had the primary outcome. The hazard ratio was 0 0.70, and the confidence interval did cross one, but it was 0.46 to 1.07. The annual rate of major adverse cardiovascular events was 0.61% in the CT group, compared with 0.86% in the angiography group. And then there were a bunch of those kind of secondary outcomes that they looked at. Um, you know, one of the things was major procedure-related complications, and these did happen more often in the angiography group. Um, but to be fair, you know, this was partly due to the fact that of those who were randomized to CT, some of them went on to go for angiography. And so that would happen in upwards of 22% of the patients. Um, but CT scan was associated with fewer revascularization procedures. And then some of those other outcomes, so you know, there's a quality of life indicator, there's actually similar scores when it came to health-related quality of life um, as indicated by the participants. But I think the big thing was that there wasn't actually a big difference in the primary cardiovascular outcomes between either CT or angiography. Like that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so what were the limitations, though, before we get too excited? Uh, so, you know, I think that one of the things that was interesting is I looked everywhere and I could not find data in either the main paper or in the supplementary papers about renal data. Because one of the things I'm always worried about is, you know, the CT scan does require contrast. And so what is the risk for contrast related complications? You know, of course, like contrast induced nephropathy does not happen all the time, but I want to know so I can kind of tell my patients what the risk could look like. So they don't document that or AKI anywhere in the paper, which I was a bit surprised by. Um, and then more just of a practical health systems consideration is like, you know, what's kind of the cost effectiveness going to be uh, between these two things? Because that's going to be very important as you're thinking like what's best for the population. Gotcha. Now, I mean, to be honest, though, like I think, you know, a CT scan leading to like renal failure or even like impressive AKI, like I think that's total fake news. Um, and if anything, I think it's the angiogram. Um, that is certainly what can cause potentially a little bit of contrast-induced nephropathy. But I just don't even believe that like a CTPE or whatever else um, it, it can really be implicated in contrast-induced nephropathy. But it sounds like maybe you and I disagree on that. Front. No, and you know what? I think that's actually fair because, of course, the angiography also has a very um, important uh, contrast consideration too. And so I guess like I'm just surprised that they didn't report that at all for any of the patients. Like I think it'd be an easy thing to comment on yeah that's that's fair enough i mean i think one kicker is that you and i are used to inpatients where like we bloodlet our patients whereas these are outpatients so you know they're probably not getting you know routine labs a couple days later but fair and i bet you it's safer in the ct group but the cost standpoint i agree with or even just the time like you know if i could pick uh yeah give me a ct i don't want to be there all day and no i don't want you putting a needle in my wrist or my groin to do your angiogram so cool okay what's a take-home point uh, from your standpoint 
So the take-home was that after three and a half years of follow-up, there was no major difference between CT scan versus angiography for those patients with stable intermediate risk chest pain. Uh, CT seems to be a safe first-line option for certain patients. Yeah, I completely agree. And then is this practice changing for you? I mean, again, like I will easily admit that I have never ordered a CT as an initial assessment for patients with chest pain. And and again, I think it's important to remember that we're talking about intermediate chest pain. We're not talking about patients with unstable angina or, you know, other patients who obviously need angiography. But if I'm asked to see someone in my clinic with stable chest pain, uh, an intermediate risk profile, I will certainly consider sending them for a CT scan as a first line test. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I also typically just see patients when they're in hospital and they're coming in with an N-STEMI, unstable angina, STEMI, whatever. Um, but this is completely practice changing, especially when we're seeing individuals, you know, either the, in the emergency department who have stable chest pain that we're sending out um, or in the outpatient setting. Well, cool. All right. Well, we will now change gears and I'm going to talk about um, a study called Effective Subcutaneous Terzepatide versus Placebo Added to Titrated Insulin Glargine on Glycemic Control in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. The SURPASS-5 randomized trial um, published in JAMA 2020. I think it was in March or April, but I probably should have just written that down. All right, cool. So what was the research question here? What is the comparative effectiveness of terzepatide versus placebo among individuals who have diabetes and they're on insulin? And specifically, I'm looking at weight loss and A1C changes. All right. It sounds to be pretty relevant to a lot of the things that we deal with. But why did you think this was important? Yeah, it's diabetes, you know, like um, so many of our patients, a third of our patients in hospital have diabetes. Um, terzepatide is a novel once weekly um, dual uh, glucose dependent insulinotropic polypeptide and GLP-1 receptor agonists. So, of course, you know, we're pretty familiar with the GLP-1 receptor agonists such as semaglutide, I think being probably the most popular in Ontario. And um, with this molecule, terzepatide, there have been previous randomized trials uh, that have shown important reductions in hemoglobin A1c, especially among adults with diabetes who aren't on insulin. Um, and currently, guidelines generally recommend GLP-1 agonists prior to basal insulin, uh, hence why this was important to look at whether it could also be helpful in adults with diabetes who are also on insulin. Okay, pretty cool. I don't know how you said that so easily. A glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. Doesn't roll off the tongue, but uh, you handled that quite well. What was the design here? Yeah, it sure doesn't. So this is a phase three randomized trial at 45 sites in eight countries from 2019 to 2020. It's really just incredible to think that they could get a randomized trial done that quickly. Um, they included adults with type 2 diabetes and A1C ranging from 7% to 10.5%, BMI of 23 and up, and they had to be on at least 23 units of insulin. Exclusion criteria included if you had type 1 diabetes, pancreatitis, um, non-proliferative or proliferative diabetic retinopathy, uh, hepatitis, um, hypoglycemia, unawareness, gastroparesis, or GFR less than 30. And then the patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one-to-one ratio um, to receive once weekly um, a terzepatide at three different doses, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, or 15 milligrams, or placebo for 40 weeks. 
Their terzepatide itself was initiated at 2.5 milligrams per week and then escalated thereafter, depending on what arm the patients were randomized to. The primary outcome here was change in hemoglobin A1c at week 40, and secondary endpoints uh, were change in body weight, uh, as well as some other changes in A1c over time. Okay, so what did the patients look like? 586 were assessed for eligibility, 475 patients uh, were included and randomized, 44% were women, average age of 61, average A1C of 8.3%, average BMI of 33, Um, 80% were on uh, metformin, and of course all individuals were on insulin. A median glargine dose was approximately 30 units per day, so you know, a decent dose. Uh, And I'll note up front, Uh, In terms of how often the drug versus placebo was stopped, 3% of the time with placebo versus 10 to 15 to 18% for tuzepatide, depending on the dose used. Okay, so did this glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, did it help? Yes, it sure did. So at the 5 milligram dose, um, patients experienced a 2% 2% reduction in their hemoglobin A1c and 12 pounds of weight loss. At the 10 milligram dose, they experienced a 2.5% reduction in their A1c and 17 pounds of weight loss. And at the 15 milligram dose of tirzepatide, again, 2.5% reduction in A1c and 20 pounds of weight loss. Compare that to the placebo group. What happened in the placebo group? A point reduction in the A1C, and they gained weight, um, and specifically about three pounds. And then what was also important is how did the insulin dose change over time in these groups? Because of course we know that insulin is associated with all sorts of bad stuff like hypoglycemia and weight gain. So in the five milligram group, uh, they experienced a a 13% increase in the 10 milligram group, 8% increase, and then the 15 milligram um, group, an 11% decrease, okay? So it's like they were able to wean off some of their insulin. Compare that to the placebo group where they experienced a 75% increase in their dose of insulin. Um, They also looked at some uh, uh, other interesting outcomes and in the trisepatide group, they saw impressive reduction in LDL and cholesterol. And of course, a crucial question is how about the side effects? So the serious adverse events were similar across all groups. For some of the less serious adverse events, uh, they experienced really a dose-dependent um, increasing in GI side effects, anywhere from 5 to 10% with trisepatide versus 0% with placebo, and more eructation with trisepatide compared to placebo. Uh, skill testing question. John, do you know what eructation is? I have never heard of eructation. Please inform me. Me neither. I, I had to Google it. It's the fancy word for saying belching okay (laughs) that is really good (laughs) so there is a scientific word for belching yes yes revenge of the nerds right there um and and you know what's obviously crucial is how about the risk of hypoglycemia so a slightly higher risk of mild hypoglycemia uh, with the tercepatide uh so you know i'm talking like 15 percent versus 13 percent um so you know you know, slightly, but no increased risk of uh, severe hypoglycemia, which is, I think, what we care the most about. Wow. Those are very impressive, like weight loss reductions, A1C reductions. That That's quite something. Uh, some limitations. What, what are your thoughts? What, what's the downsides here? So uh, 
it's a relatively small trial, um, so we'll have to see if these results can be replicated, but I bet they will be. Um, the cost of these medications, I expect they will be astronomical, uh, so that's obviously an important consideration. And we saw that folks who received terzepatide were far more likely to stop the medication than if they were given placebo. So that has real world um, important implications when we're thinking about how we manage folks in the real world. But this actually means we've probably underestimated the benefits of this drug because they were stopped more often. Like that's even more incredible. And then I do worry, like, yes, this was a blinded trial, but I don't think you can really ensure blinding happens when there's a striking higher rate of GI side effects and eructation with terzepatide, but still pretty impressive stuff here. That's great. So other than learning what eructation is, what else do you think is the take-home point here? I think the take-home point is that certainly, you know, this molecule um, is going to provide another really impressive option for adults with diabetes, even if they are on insulin. And this drug might help potentially to decrease how much insulin they need, and it's once a week. So I think it's just reinforcing how amazing these new classes of diabetes drugs are, uh, in this case, the, the GLP-1 agonists. It is pretty incredible. Uh, practice changing for you? Yeah, it is for two reasons. So I mean, it reinforces um, my my love of prescribing GLP-1 uh, agonists, but I usually don't if the patient's already on insulin because I think to myself, well, you know, they're already on insulin, but I think that assumption is wrong. Um, so that's practice changing. And of course, we'll have to wait till this medication is available in Ontario and Canada to, to use it specifically, but other GLP-1 agonists have similar benefits to this one. It just, it's such a credit to the work that people have done in diabetes research, finding these new molecules, new targets. My goodness, it's having like big implications on patient care. Yeah, I totally agree. And of course, now it's sort of knowledge translation and how do we actually, you know, get these medications to our patients. Okay, John, we're going to talk about the good stuff, but first I see a package has arrived for me at Amazon. So let me just excuse myself for one second. Breweries will deliver, um, but you have to show ID, um, of course, when you accept the package. Anywho, so what's the good stuff for me? There are some really good breweries um, in the East End, but but anyway, what's your actual good stuff, John? For, 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 for uh, so my good, yeah, my good stuff uh, applies to Toronto, um, and it's going back to that Blue Jays game. So the the Jays were playing the Yankees. Uh, Aaron Judge is a pretty good baseball player. He hit a massive home run, and a Jays fan caught it, but very quickly gave it to a young Yankees fan in the crowd. Um, it's a heartwarming story about a, a, a young boy from Toronto, um, but he just loves the Yankees and he loves Judge. And because of that act of kindness, a lot of good things happened. Uh, the little guy got to meet Judge in the next game. And I think the Yankees are even flying everybody down to a game uh, sometime in the near future. So it's a heartwarming story. I think it kind of blew up over the news, but we'll have the CBC article on our website. Oh, awesome. Yeah, funny enough, uh, mine, ironically, is also related to baseball. Um, and I think I've probably mentioned John Boy Media once before on the show, but there is just a, a really great breakdown he does of uh, a recent baseball game that highlights this um, 
really bad umpire named uh, Angel Hernandez. And Angel Hernandez, it turns out, sued the MLB because he had been passed over um, to be an ump in the World Series for the last however many years. And the MLB, I don't know, like countersued or in, in, in the case itself said, no, you, you weren't passed over. This isn't discrimination. You're just a really bad umpire. So it was a funny video to watch. And uh, uh, anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, but definitely check it out. And when you watch it, it also makes a nice case for, I don't think we need umpires to call balls and strikes. We can leave that up to, you know, a, a bot AI model. But anyway, that's what I got this week. All right. Very cool. I, I remember there was a, like a lot of people very upset about some terrible calls, like obvious balls. I mean, I don't play baseball, but I would agree like lots of balls being called as strikes. So yeah, bring on the AI. Yeah. It turns out you, you can't fire umpires. So that's, that's definitely not a good thing, but you can relegate them to make sure they're not umping important games. Uh, anyway, John, um, great to chat and we'll talk again soon. Talk to you soon, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.